Hello and welcome to Map Bites episode 141. I'm Mike Thomas and I'm here with my co-host Elaine Giles. In this episode, we have a digital ticket to play pricing bingo while money laundering. And hot on the heels of last week's news that Siri was to be stripped of 22 features comes news of Siri acquiring a new feature. Can they not just make their minds up? Clearly not, dear boy. Do they want me capable or not? iOS 15 brings a new Announce Notifications feature for Siri. It works just like Announce Messages and Calls. Or as Apple word it, have Siri read out notifications without having to unlock your iPhone when second generation AirPods and some Beats headphones are connected. Siri will avoid interrupting you and will listen after reading notifications so you can reply without saying H-E-Y Siri. Do you know it sounds very vague as to what equipment actually supports this feature? Clearly the newer AirPods, but some Beats is a bit vague. And I'm assuming other headphones just aren't supported. Actually, I don't know what I'm worrying about. It's not like I actually want notifications on my devices, much less announcements of them. I can assure you I wouldn't dare interrupt you. Something to look forward to when iOS 15 is released. Not that some of us have actually done the iOS 14 thing yet. Hey, Mike. OK, I've not done my iPhone, but no, I have done the iPad. I did that ages ago. Now, this next piece is definitely one for me. Not being disparaging, but what do you know about the laundry? I know it involves two of those big white box things. Admittedly, that's about it, but still, it's a start. And in my defence, I only get drafted in with the white boxes when they're not working correctly. I think she means she's the organ grinder, not the monkey. Thanks for that. Anyway, back to the app. Have you ever looked at the washing instruction labels on your clothes and wondered what each of those symbols means? Can't say I have. I leave that to you. Laundry Lens is an iOS app that tells you what those washing, drying and ironing symbols mean. It's a very simple app. Pointing the iPhone or iPad camera at the label and waiting a few seconds, it reads in the symbols from the label and displays them in a pop-up box on screen. Tapping the See Instructions button displays another pop-up box that displays the same symbols with plain English instructions next to them. So, for example, if the label contains a symbol that looks like a bowl full of water with the number 30 in it, when you tap on See Instructions, you see the same symbol with the machine wash, water temperature up to 30 degrees centigrade written next to it. At least, that's the idea. I tested it with a t-shirt where the label contained several symbols, one of which looks like a bowl of water with 40 written inside it, which I assumed means don't wash in water hotter than 40 degrees centigrade. The app translated this as machine wash, water temperature up to 30 degrees centigrade. Well, at least if I believe the app, I'll be using a lower temperature than the recommended maximum. If the app had recommended 50 degrees maximum, I'd have had a ruined t-shirt. Another t-shirt I tried had five symbols on it, which were really tiny and difficult for me to read. But the app picked out three of them and translated them correctly. 
There's also a search symbol feature which lets you search through a library of symbols built into the app, select one and display its meaning in plain English. So instead of scanning the label, you look at the symbols on the label, think, I wonder what that one means, look through the library of symbols in the app, tap on the matching symbol and it gives you an explanation. A pretty nifty little utility app, although not one for an experienced washer like me. I think I had a totally different idea of what this did. I'd have been so much more impressed if I could have just pointed the camera at the item to be washed, rather than a label I might not have inside it. But, scope for version 2 then. Another week, another ejection from the App Store. The app in question being unjected. The app was available in the App Store until Bloomberg reached out for comment. There you go, another case of Apple motivated to remove an app by the media and not its own internal review process. But carry on. It billed itself as a place for like-minded people that support medical autonomy and free speech. Unlike Apple, it seems. The offending part of the app seems to be a social feed where people are making some wild claims about the vaccine. I do appreciate that Apple and Google have to be careful of what they appear to endorse by allowing apps in their stores. But come on, there's a million times more anti-vax content on Facebook and Twitter than in this app. And I don't see them being slung out of the store anytime soon. Um, Aussie Covid passports were another one following on from the UK rollout a week ago. And then there's YouTube. YouTube have a dedicated section related to COVID news, which I have turned off so many times. It keeps popping back up, though. I am not interested in anything anybody has to say about COVID in a YouTube video. And yet there is no opt out permanently option. It's actually even worse if you're not logged in. You can't turn the section off at all. So not much choice there then either. Can you imagine what it must be like for people who've lost loved ones and they're only thinking of visiting YouTube for some respite? And what are they bombarded with? Covid news. If I see one more Covid related story video or news item, I think I'll go mad. I obviously don't use YouTube like you. Yes, I see the section, though it's further down the screen, so I ignore it. But when I'm on YouTube, I've usually got to it from Google or from a YouTube search as I'm looking for something usually Excel or Power BI related, not aimlessly just going to the YouTube homepage. Well, what's even worse is I'm a YouTube premium member. I pay so I don't see adverts and I consider anything that I didn't ask for to be adverts, especially when I've turned it off a million times. I just think it's bad form from YouTube. Back to Apple, though, they are most definitely more welcoming to all things Provax, such as the Australian vaccine certificates, which have now been added to Apple Wallet. And with all the scrapping about pro and anti content and constant exposure to pro and anti propaganda that we just can't escape, the next major issue will be a global mental health crisis. And I'm wondering if there's an app for that. I'm just going to stick to blocking both sides of all of this. You'll find me watching Panda videos and my mental health is fine. Thanks for asking. Now, WhatsApp has added the ability to send content that can be viewed only once. Why? All that does is make WhatsApp yet another perv's playground. Pardon? A perv's playground or a perv's paradise. Apparently, there's this thing. Just pondering how to put it delicately. Um, 
No, I don't believe there is a way. Where folks, this thing, folks send each other photos of their genitals. Before you ask, I have not been party to this myself. Thankfully, as there are some things that can't be unseen. Well, that's very true. With this system, viewing it once precludes sharing it with law enforcement later if it was not requested. Now, while careful reading of the small print claims, encrypted media may be stored for a few weeks on WhatsApp servers after you've sent it. It's only a may. And we all know how keen tech companies are on not sharing information with law enforcement. Don't we, Apple? FBI phone unlocking anyone. But this whole business might not seem like a big issue until you realise the extent of it. And I'm first to admit, I didn't. But there was a female fitness influencer and had she done a video for the, with the BBC? She is, and I quote, cyber flashed every single day. Really? And, and I, I watched this video. Uh, luckily, the, 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 the items in question were blurred out. But since the service used to send these cyber flashing photos wasn't using a once view one system, she was able to show the messages that she'd received both to the interviewer and the police. But I seriously don't understand. Before we go any further with this, I don't understand the mentality of sending a photo of your crown jewels to someone that you don't know. But like I say, apparently it's a thing. It's not only the height of ignorance, but it also shows no self-respect whatsoever. Maybe somebody can explain it to me. Don't look at me. Nor me. So, having established that it's a licence to harass with impunity, even if we leave the twisted human nature out of this, there's still the fact that other platforms have tried this model and are currently in the process of shutting it down. Who remembers Twitter fleets? Not Twitter tweets, but Twitter fleets. Fleets being expiring tweets. They did some testing in March 2020. Uh, not the best time to test anything with COVID lockdowns the world over. But the idea was for a lower pressure kind of tweet. And they were only introduced officially in November 2020. The hope was that fleets would draw new users to Twitter, but that didn't happen. And I'm not really surprised. I've used Twitter since 2008 and I had no idea how to send a fleet. I swear all these companies think that, that the knowledge to use their increasingly obscure interfaces is passed on via osmosis or something. The location occupied by fleets, apparently it was at the top of the feed, is now being handed over to Twitter Spaces. That's the clubhouse-like audio room thing. So let us know, did you ever use fleets? Would you use self-destructing messages in WhatsApp? Oh, actually, that reminds me of something. This tape will self-destruct in five seconds. I'm going to leave this one to you. Lighting the blue touch paper and running, you mean. It's a seemingly simple story. But when a story comes out of Apple on a Friday, you should be on notice that they don't want you to examine it too closely. It's reminiscent of Labour spin doctor Joe Moore sending an email as New York's Twin Towers burned, suggesting that the 11th of September was, and I quote, a good day to bury bad news. Yes, she did eventually lose her job. So now you know Apple's equivalent of a good day to bury bad news. It's Friday. 
If you recall, that's exactly what happened with the air power cancellation announcement. It sneaked out the day after the AirPods 2 release on Friday, the 29th of March 2019. This time it was news that Apple are intending to add new child safety features to their platforms. I'm not a child, nor do I have children. Well, obviously there's Lola, but she's got far more sense than the average preteen. But safer for children sounds good in principle. There are two privacy changes involved here. The first is on-device machine learning based analysis. Catchy title. Parents will have the option to enable on-device machine learning based analysis. So it's going to analyse all the incoming and outgoing images in messages to identify those of an adult nature. To function, it requires family sharing to be turned on and it only applies to children under 18. Hmm. Given you can get married at 16 and drive at 17, it seems strange to say children under 18. Anyway, an alert will be shown warning of the type of image contained in the message and you'll need to confirm whether you want to continue and view the message. Parents of under 13s can also choose to get an alert themselves if their child attempts to send or receive what is referred to as sensitive media. So far, so good, particularly as it only applies to those with family sharing enabled and those under 18 and 13 respectively. Then came the crunch. Apple are going to be scanning iCloud photos for child abuse images. So this is the scanning of photos stored within iCloud Photos. The idea is to attempt to prevent the transmission and possession of media referred to as a child sexual abuse material, or CSAM. Apple's plan is to scan all photos before they're synced from an iPhone or iPad to iCloud, scanning them against a cryptographically obscured database of known CSAM stored on each device. Now, obviously, that's not an opt-in thing, nor do you have the option to opt out either. But then if there were, that alone would doubtless be a rather large flag for Apple to consider making you public enemy number one. So that leaves Apple rubbernecking our photos then. Now, against a database of confirmed images of that abhorrent type. But if you're going to try that, it must be 100% accurate. But Apple is employing artificial intelligence. It's going to be trained against a database of known images and then let loose to make its own determinations regarding your images. I can only imagine how far wrong something like this can go. Because flagging a single image from one single person as being of that kind of image when it isn't is one too many. Apple claims the technology is accurate to the extent that there's only a one in one trillion chance of it being incorrect. They say, using another technology called threshold secret sharing, the system ensures the contents of the safety vouchers cannot be interpreted by Apple unless the iCloud photo account crosses a threshold of known CSAM content. The threshold is set to provide an extremely high level of accuracy and ensures less than one in one trillion chance per year of incorrectly flagging a given account. But look, Apple, there's nothing that's idiot proof. If Apple have technology that is a trillion to one accurate, maybe they could use it in their own app store, where this week they managed to promote a scam app. Question one, how did a scam app get into the store? Question two, why didn't they remove it and remove it 
ASAP. Question three. How did Apple manage to actually promote this app? Actually, there's been a distinct lack of due diligence lately from Apple, like the Antonio Garcia Martinez thing back in May. He was hired. He was in the middle of the onboarding process at Apple joining the ads team. When employees at Apple had to draw Apple's attention to the fact that in his autobiography, he'd made several derogatory comments regarding women and people of colour. Just to give you an idea of the kind of thing the Apple employees were concerned about, in case you were thinking they were snowflakes. Quoting from his book, Most women in the Bay Area are soft and weak, cosseted and naive, despite their claims of worldliness and generally full of s***. They have their self-regarding entitlement feminism and ceaselessly vaunt their independence. But the reality is, come the epidemic plague or foreign invasion, they'd become precisely the sort of useless baggage you'd trade for a box of shotgun shells or a jerry can of diesel. Nice. One of the other statements was that disgusting, I can't repeat it here. There is a link in the show notes, though, if you choose to subject yourself to it. But seriously, though, what kind of Muppet needs to speak like that about any group of people? And even worse... What kind of Muppets hire such people? Why wasn't this found in the pre-hire investigations? Very, very poor Apple. Now, Apple have faced plenty of criticism regarding the new spyware. Sorry, sorry. Child Protection Initiative. WhatsApp head Will Cathcart called Apple's move very concerning. His issues, the technology could be expanded and used by an authoritarian government to spy on its own citizens. He argues that WhatsApp's system to tackle child sexual abuse material has reported more than 400,000 cases to the US National Centre for Missing and Exploited Children without breaking encryption. Which begs the question, what exactly is their system? Because he wasn't sharing. Needless to say, politicians have welcomed the move. Sajid Javid, UK Health Secretary, said it was time for others, especially Facebook, to follow suit. Clearly showing a complete misinterpretation of the thing. There's a big difference between policing publicly posted content on Facebook and snooping into private photos with impunity. Not to mention the fact this is US only right now. There is talk of expanding it on a per-country basis down the line. I wonder what the European GDPR regulations will have to say about that. Obviously, in the face of complete uproar around their initial announcement, Apple have spent the last few days firefighting. Obviously, they don't call it firefighting. They're calling it offering clarity. Like I said, firefighting. And not only firefighting, but firefighting in episodes. They've confirmed it's only images and not video. So before we go any further, there's one almighty loophole right there. But it got worse. They've confirmed it only applies to photos uploaded to iCloud, not those stored locally on your devices. Really? So just who are Apple trying to protect then? Those being exploited in the images or Apple themselves, who may become liable for having those images stored on their servers? Try and clarify that, Apple. The way it's stated to work now is just plain creepy. In these circumstances, edge cases are just too subjective. While the objective may indeed be laudable, given Apple's recent history, let's just say, don't leave the fox in charge of the hen house. 
Following on from last week's earnings call shenanigans, more financial news this week. Apple were announced to be the most profitable company in the world. I must admit, I thought they already were. And I love the way all the Apple sites get giddy about this sort of stuff. I wonder if they realise that it's us customers who give Apple the money. So technically, we should take some credit for this. Timmy is the eighth highest paid executive in the US. But fear not, despite not being number one, he won't starve anytime soon. His total compensation works out to be a nice round $1 million per working day. Anybody could possibly do to warrant that kind of remuneration. But it seems, whatever it might be, Timmy is doing it. And if you think that's bad, Timmy's pay packet was dwarfed by arch nemesis Elon Musk, who banked 6.7 billion, yes, that's with a B, billion in the last financial year. If I have trouble working out what Timmy does that's worth paying him for, there's no way I'm ever going to work out what Elon Musk actually does, never mind what they actually might consider paying him to do. The tech companies are just speaking in terms of monopoly money these days. It'll be the Zoom CEO next year, given the increase in profits that they've seen during the pandemic. According to their report, with the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, Zoom's revenue went from $622.7 million to $2.7 billion in just 12 months. Which only leaves Uber, where things aren't quite so rosy with their financials. Predictions weren't met which meant shares of Uber fell more than 8% in after-hours trading. They've since recovered, but they're still off by more than 6%. So, trouble in finance land for Uber. Mm. And much excitement on Tuesday as the Apple Store went down. Was it finally the big iMac update? Was it the new MacBook Pro? Any new tech toys at all? No, it was a site redesign. A big redesign, according to reports. But at least we got back the store menu. That was last seen in 2014 when it was ditched. That design did nothing for seven years but make it much more difficult to find items, especially accessories you might want to buy. Good to see they came to their senses again, eventually. And talking of Apple stores, good news in the UK App Store as well. Prices are going down. In something that sounds like Covid banding, tier one prices are coming down from 99 pence to 89 pence. Tier two prices are coming down from 199 to 179. The difference will mean more savings on those more expensive purchases. So best advice is to keep an eye out for those prices, potentially save 10%. Now, no definite date was given for the price changes to come into force, but I checked just before we started recording and the new prices are live right now. I'm old enough to recall tier one being 79 pence back when the iPhone 3G launched. 2008. Good year that, you know. My first thought was good old Timmy's reducing prices, but when I read the articles, it's got nothing to do with Timmy. It's down to changes in tax rates and currency exchange rates. In some countries, the prices are actually going up. And in Italy, developers will get a bigger slice of the cake due to a change with the digital services tax effective rate. But yeah, good news for the customer. 
Well, potentially it is because now we'll be able to see which developers change the base price back up again to gouge the 10% out of us to boost their profit. The line in question is, Developers who feel like they need to make their own pricing adjustments after the changes are made, including to subscriptions, can do so at any time within the App Store Connect. So developers, be warned, we're watching you. Hat tip to TechSmith, though, who make Camtasia. Camtasia has now, these prices have rolled out today, been reduced by the full 10%. So it's now $89.99, reduced from $99.99, which is a big saving. It is. Now, you might recall we dedicated two shows to our use of OneNote a while back. Our friend Kevin shared his love of OneNote with us on those shows as well. And Microsoft released a dedicated Windows 10 version of OneNote a few years ago. The stated intention was for this Windows 10 version to replace the previous version, which at the time was OneNote 2016. True to their word, they declared OneNote 2016 to be legacy. However, in a complete U-turn, Microsoft is now planning to unify its OneNote and OneNote for Windows 10 apps into a single OneNote app. Now, I know that might sound to be exactly the same thing, but actually it's the complete reverse. In the first scenario, they were ditching the original 2016 version and declaring Windows 10 to be the winner going forward. In the new scenario, it's the Windows 10 version that's been sunsetted and the original desktop version that will be the only version available going forward. The improvements that they made in the Windows 10 version will be rolled into the desktop version before that Windows 10 version is quietly retired. And that'll happen in a series of updates over the next 12 months to the traditional OneNote desktop app that installs as part of Office. What are they? What are these updates? Well, a visual refresh and then undefined key existing features currently unique to OneNote for Windows 10. Microsoft said, we're working to ensure that all the most loved features will continue to be a part of OneNote. Existing users of the dedicated OneNote for Windows 10 app will be asked to upgrade to the full desktop OneNote app in the second half of 2022. So if for some unfathomable reason you prefer the Windows 10 version, you do have a little while to come to terms with its demise. It says OneNote users should move to the desktop app by October 2025, when OneNote for Windows 10 will reach the end of support. Luckily, all of this shenanigans... The changes being made to OneNote on Windows do not affect OneNote for the Mac, iOS, Android or the web. It's another example of those designing and developing apps at worst not having a clue what's actually best for those using it. Or at best, knowing what that is and choosing to completely ignore it. So the version we have on the Mac is pretty much the Windows 10 version, isn't it? It is. It, there's a lot of features missing. And that was people's concern when this Windows 10 version came out. Microsoft's in stated intention at the time was that they would add the features from the desktop version to the Windows 10 version. And now they flipped that and they're going the other way. So people clearly didn't want to leave the desktop version. So why go through all of that and then do a U-turn? It's ridiculous. OneNote's heavily used at work and you know, this is going to be fun trying to explain to users who are already under the impression their favourite features have been removed. Or maybe there'll be much joy at their return. Why don't they just leave us with the apps that we like that work and, and leave it at that? There's an idea. 
Moving on, there was news of a new Apple tech toy this week. The Magic Keyboard with Touch ID was introduced alongside the M1 iMac and it's now available for individual purchase. Standard model $149, version with numeric keypad $179. Both including a lightning to USB-C cable for pairing, charging and using wired. They only work with the M1 iMac running Mac OS 11.04 or higher. It's reported it's possible the keyboard functionality will still work with older Macs, but the Touch ID features won't. Even worse, this standalone version of the keyboard is only available in silver and white. So if you wanted a model of a different colour, you'll have to buy the iMac. Very expensive, that, for a keyboard. I get that the price of this keyboard is supported by the inclusion of the Touch ID, but still, it's expensive. I much prefer the Matthias keyboard. It looks like the Apple one, but it will connect via Bluetooth to four devices. And it's a simple tap to switch the devices. It, you don't have that long wait for it to pick up. It's virtually instant. It actually feels much better than the Apple version too. Will I feel differently when the next iMac launches? because you can't actually order one without a keyboard. So one will definitely be making an appearance at MacBytes headquarters at some point. Don't talk to me about Apple keyboards. When I got my new Mac in December last year, the keyboard that came with it was faulty. Not faulty to the point it was unusable, but it went from fully charged to flat in two to three days. Whereas the keyboard on the other iMac, which is four years old, can last a couple of months without being charged. Granted, the older iMac doesn't get as much use these days, but the newer iMac should really last more than a couple of days. Yes, I know I could just swap the keyboards, but it's the principle of the matter. It's interesting that you mention how long the battery lasts, because that's the other thing with this Matthias. It's got the numeric keypad on it, but it actually stands taller on the desk so underneath it instead of having to remember the fold out legs it's not got fold out legs don't panic but it does have this ridge on it and the ridge is the battery and it's the full width of the keyboard so when it first arrived which was i think it was early last year um, there's no indication light on it or no way to work out how much battery life's left in it so i decided to leave it until it ran out and then work out from that how long it was. Uh, it was four and a half months. Needless to say, as always happens, when it did decide it had had enough, it was in the middle of a live show. But luckily, you can actually plug in the cable at the back and then just carry on with it while it charges. But that four and a half months, dear. <clears throat> I think I was in the middle of a live show when I realised that that was the problem. It just it just died on me. I, I could just... Have you noticed somebody... We've, we've obviously got some, some equipment here that's spying on us. Because the other thing that happens, and I remember wafting my hand over it the other day, we were in the middle of a live show. This one was our music show. And Google, every week for the last, as long as I can remember, unceremoniously logs me out, either on a Friday night when we do After Hours or on a Saturday night when we're doing the music show. So there I am, Google spreadsheet open. I've been working on it for at least 20 minutes. It's where we keep all of the tracks we play. And what did it do? I wafted my hand at it and said to Mike, there you go, again. Absolutely me in the middle of doing something, 
So I'm actually typing in it. It logs me out and says you need to log into Google again. We've got spies in the camp. We Do you have. think it's Siri? We have. I know I could have just swapped the keyboards, but as you say, it's the principle of the matter. So in February, I contacted Apple support via the text chat on their website and I got talking to Jenny, a customer service advisor. I'd already done a load of testing and troubleshooting before contacting them. I'd taken a leaf out of your book from the days of contacting support at B, one of our previous ISPs. I'm sure you remember those days. Have you? Oh, yes. Have you turned it off and on again? Have you done this? Have you done that? Try this and come back to us tomorrow if it's still broken. And that's why we do what we can before contacting support. You know, it really throws them when they can't read off their, off their pre-prepared script, doesn't it? Oh, yes. Anyway, to cut a long story short, Jenny agreed that it was faulty and would replace it. I could just take it to an Apple store and they sort me out. Yeah, right. Pandemic, remember? I don't even think that they were open in February. And if they were, I certainly wasn't venturing to the Trafford Centre. I told her I was shielding. And she asked if a friend or relative could take it to the Apple store on my behalf. Bad words were said. <laughs> Under my breath, obviously. I kindly rejected her suggestion, so she offered me another option. They'll send me a new keyboard by courier. And when it arrives, I pack the broken keyboard up in the box that the new keyboard came in and go to the post office and post it back to them. And to make sure I post it back to them, they put a charge on my credit card of £100. Now, if this ever happens to you, I think they call it a, a, a temporary hold. Anyway, it gets refunded once they receive it, receive the, uh, the uh, keyboard back, that is. Now, what part of shielding not leaving the house doesn't Jenny get? Her suggestion? Ask a friend or relative to drop off your old keyboard at the post office. More bad words were said. So I asked her if the courier who's bringing my new keyboard could wait five minutes whilst I unpacked it and packed up the old one and they could then return it to Apple. You'd have to ask the courier, was her reply. And who is the courier, I asked. Let me check, she said. Two minutes later, she comes back. Sorry, we won't be able to confirm who the courier is as the replacement request hasn't been completed. Well, whoever it is, will Apple refund the transportation fee charged by the courier for taking my broken keyboard? I asked. I won't be able to answer anything in regards to the courier or their fees as they are their own separate entity and services that they offer, was her reply. At this point, very bad words were said. OK, you know what? I know it's not your fault and you are only doing your job, but this sucks. Yes, I actually said that. I have the chat transcript in front of me right now. So I continued. I've spent almost £3,500 on a brand new iMac. It has a defective keyboard, which was defective from the beginning. In a normal world, I would have had no problem going to an Apple store or a post office. But it's not a normal world and I'm unable to get to a post office. And if I ask a courier to pick it up, it'll cost me money, which may or may not be refunded. And with that the conversation drew to a close. Jenny apologised, she wasn't able to resolve it, and I still have a keyboard that needs charging every couple of days. Don't fancy a newer Touch ID version then? Not as much as a fancier keyboard that works as intended. <laughs> anyway, shocking news for you this week as well. 
Too right. I read that Apple had surveyed people regarding their preference for the size of the new iPad mini. And? They didn't ask me. Who are the people they do ask? Oh, I know. People who are likely to agree with what they want to do. In that case, they will never ask you. Cruel. Very true, but cruel. Do you really need another iPad? What's need got to do with it? I've never had an iPad mini. Would have been great when I used to go to physical meetings. You're going back now. I am. And the way I feel right now, if I never have another face-to-face meeting, it'll be too soon. But whatever the size is, I'll probably skip this one. Now, YouTube are testing a new and more importantly cheaper version of ad-free viewing of its content. The current YouTube Premium service costs $11.99 a month, and the new option is called Premium Lite and costs €6.99 a month. For comparison purposes, the dollar price will most likely be the same $6.99. It's currently available for testing in a number of countries throughout Europe, including Belgium, Denmark, Finland, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Norway and Sweden. Premium Light removes ads from videos on desktop and devices. And the Would You Like to Try Premium for a Month nag screens? They'll probably be replaced by the Would You Like to Upgrade to the Full Version nag screens. So what's missing by comparison to the full YouTube Premium? I can help you out there. I have a Premium account. Uh, With the full Premium, you get background play on mobile. You get to download videos for offline viewing and you get YouTube music. Some of the articles I read regarding this said at 60% of the price of full premium, you might as well go for premium. But I calculated it and that's a difference of approximately $60 or euros or pounds a year. YouTube is almost unusable without some form of ad-free viewing, but you do need to remember with this, it's only going to block ads powered by YouTube. There are numerous videos on YouTube that are sponsored. Now, sponsorship happens outside the control of YouTube. And since they're burnt into the video, no amount of premium payments will remove them. I think if the ads bother you and you don't want or need the other full premium, I'd say it's not a bad deal. We'll just have to wait and see how it's received, because depending on that, we'll depend whether it rolls out beyond the testing countries or with us on the vine. Couple of interesting pieces of news about Spotify this week. There's reports of some users being offered a new deal. Currently, there's free accounts and several premium accounts. Individual premium for $9.99 a month, duo premium for $13.99 a month. As the name implies, that's for two people in the same household to share an account. Family premium for $16.99 a month, and that's for up to six users in the same household. The premium benefits include the ability to download music, play any song, ad-free listening, unlimited skips, and the new deal is 99 pence. It's a special offer. What do you get? You get ad-free listening, but not the other full premium benefits. This new type of account is called Plus. So what's not to like? The fact that the offer is random. Not every user with a free account will see the offer at all. Even if they do, they may not see the 99 pence offer. They are, and I quote, testing various price points. 
So it's a case of pricing bingo. Riedel tried that with PDF Expert. Yeah, until I contacted them and pointed out how unfair that was. Only then did they offer me the same deal as you. Gamification of pricing is simply ridiculous. What will it tell them? Oh, more people buy when it's cheaper. You don't say. And that wasn't the end of the Spotify woes this week either. A while back, they promised support for AirPlay 2. They've now announced it isn't happening anytime soon. Maybe they'll release it randomly. AirPlay roulette. You know that phrase, a victim of your own success? Oh, yes. Well, Microsoft proved it true again when they launched Windows 365 cloud PCs last Monday. It's Windows, Jim, but not as you know it. It's Windows running on a virtual remote server owned and managed by Microsoft, and you access it via a browser on PC or Mac or a dedicated iPad app. They were offering a free 60-day trial, and two days later, they ran out of capacity. And their sage solution to this little issue. Free trials suspended until Microsoft are able to increase capacity. Genius. I could have predicted that myself. They really do have no excuse, especially after the OneDrive debacle. They offered unlimited OneDrive space in the Office 365 subscription. Guess what? Massively oversubscribed within weeks. Subsequently, they reneged on the deal and it's now limited to one terabyte per email account. When it was first announced, I logged into our Microsoft Enterprise Edition portal. The free trial was available. I logged in again at the weekend and the free trial is gone. However, if you've got the money, they've got the capacity. A virtual cloud PC with one CPU 2 gig of RAM and 64 gig of hard drive will set you back £20.50 per user per month. And at the other end of the scale, eight CPUs, 32 gig of RAM and 512 gig of hard drive space cost £138 per user per month. I could buy a physical PC for that. Actually, a decent spec physical PC is about three and a half grand. So £138 a month for three years, I'd say is the average life of, of a PC, is just under five grand. So if you're after a free trial, it's a case of move along, nothing to see. At least not right now. Watch this space. The football season is starting again this month, and with it the introduction of digital tickets at Old Trafford, which got me thinking about how technology has changed the way we buy tickets and attend football matches. Let's go back to September 1978 and my first visit to Old Trafford. Life was tech-free and so much simpler. At that time, there were three ways that you could get into a football stadium to watch a match. You could pay cash at the turnstiles, you could buy a ticket for a specific match in advance or even on the day from the ticket office, or you could buy a season ticket. Although season tickets at Old Trafford have always been, and still are, like gold dust, and there's a waiting list. Not helped by the fact that when the ticket owner dies, the ticket is often kept in the family. I remember someone once commenting on the number of season ticket holders United have who are over 100 years old. So back to 1978. A family friend who owned two season tickets rang our house one Saturday morning. His son, who normally went to the game with him, was unable to go, and would I like to go instead? As an 11-year-old mad-keen Manchester United fan, of course I said yes. 
and knowing that his tickets were for seats right on the halfway line, about 15 rows from the pitch and right in front of the director's area where I might, and in fact did, see the great Sir Matt Busby was a bonus and just added to my excitement. In those days, as far as tickets were concerned, it was all very analogue. A season ticket consisted of a small book, a little bit bigger than a credit card, and inside the book were about 40 tear-out vouchers, each with a different number on it. You'd take the entire book to the match, keeping it carefully secreted in an inside pocket for fear of losing it or being pickpocketed. Above the entrances to the stadium, there would be a board with a number on it, you tear out the voucher from the book containing the corresponding number and hand it to the person operating the turnstile. The voucher numbers weren't announced in advance and were randomised. In other words, the fifth game of the season wasn't necessarily voucher 5. And voucher 13 was never used due to the superstitious nature of many footballers. In fact, if memory serves me right, at some point they stopped including voucher 13 in the book. A couple of years later, our family friend was going on holiday, so he offered his two tickets to me and my dad, which meant my dad had to go to his house to pick up the ticket books. And then, once our friend was back from holiday, he had to go back to his house to return the books in time for the next match. Swapping tickets back then, although not illegal, went against the terms and conditions of being a season ticket holder. It happened, the club knew it happened, but they turned a blind eye. Better to have a stadium full with a great atmosphere and 70,000 people buying pies and souvenirs than a half-empty stadium because people weren't able to attend. So, apart from having to drive to our friend's house to pick up and return the tickets, allowing someone else to use your ticket was pretty straightforward. Bear that in mind, I'll come back to it later. When I was about 16, Mum and Dad deemed that I was old enough to start going to games on my own. I didn't have a season ticket, so I picked out a few games and applied for tickets. Dad wasn't really interested in football. He only went when there was a spare ticket, but he did apply for tickets on my behalf. I can see him now typing up a letter of application for individual matches on his typewriter and writing out a cheque payable to Manchester United ticket office. Oh, that sounds just like me, except it was my mum who would handwrite the letter on her most expensive letter-headed paper. Most of the time, I was lucky and the self-addressed envelope that I sent with the application came back with a ticket enclosed. A proper ticket, not just a voucher with a number on it. This was a real ticket with the date and time and the name of the opposing team and the seat number, embossed with the club badge, a real collector's item. In fact, I still have a box in the loft with all my ticket stubs in. Occasionally, when demand outstrips supply, a ballot was held to determine the successful applicants and once or twice I didn't make the cut and received a rejection letter. In later years, this became known as being chubbed, a phrase named after Arthur Chubb, the ticket office manager, whose signature appeared at the bottom of those rejection letters. Going back to season tickets... The cost of the ticket includes entry to all home games played in the league and guarantees you the same seat. But it doesn't include tickets for the knockout competitions known as cup matches. In addition to the 19 home games in the league, depending on whether the team progresses through the knockout rounds and gets drawn to play at home in every round of the cup competitions, there could be an additional 14 home matches during the season. 
For cup matches played at home, season ticket holders would be given a period of, say, a week to purchase their own seat, after which tickets would go on at open sale to anyone who wanted one. To purchase your seat, you'd either have to send in a letter of application with a cheque and hope that it didn't get lost in the post, or go down to the ticket office in person. Either way, it took time and effort. At some point in the mid-2000s, Manchester United joined the technological revolution. Voucher-based season tickets were replaced with what looked like a plastic credit card. It was known as a stadium access season ticket card and you'd swipe it through a card reader at the turnstiles to get into the stadium. Printed on the card was your unique membership number and your name. I remember one time I had to miss a match as I went to Canada for work, so your dad went with you and used my ticket. No problem there, he could pretend to be Mike Thomas. But there was also the time that you weren't well and he took your place. Although I don't recall him wearing a skirt to get into the game. Again, I think the club turned a blind eye. They might have done, but that's a sight I would have paid to see. A few years ago, the terms and conditions of the stadium entry were amended so that now a season ticket holder can lend their ticket to someone else. At around the same time as they brought in the stadium access cards, they also changed the way that we bought tickets for cup matches. No more writing in, no more sending cheques, no more trips to the Old Trafford ticket office. They introduced the automatic cup scheme. Season ticket holders would simply create an account via the club website and register their credit card. And if United were drawn at home in a cup competition, we would automatically be allocated our usual seat. We still had to pay for the tickets, obviously, hence having to register a credit card. But behind the scenes, our stadium access cards were updated to allow entry into the cup match that we just paid for. However, this automatic cup scheme caused anger amongst fans. And you're thinking, why? The club had just made our lives easier. But quite a lot of season ticket holders don't attend cup games. It might be a question of cost. It might be their other half says they spend quite enough time at the footy. Or, for those who live a distance away, it might be to do with getting time off work and travel, as the League Cup and the European Games take place midweek in the evenings. What the club had done was to force season ticket holders to join the Automatic Cup scheme, which meant that some fans ended up paying for tickets for matches that they couldn't attend. Eventually, the club realised the error of their ways, allowing us to opt out of the scheme for the League Cup. However, it remains mandatory to buy tickets for the FA Cup and European games. As well as changes to how fans bought tickets for Old Trafford, technology changed the way tickets were allocated for big games like cup finals. In the 1950s, United introduced what they called a token scheme. Tokens were small vouchers about an inch square with a number printed on them and they were printed in the match day programme at every home match played by the first team and also at random matches played by the reserve and youth teams. Oh, reserve matches and youth team games. Season ticket holders got into reserve matches for free. You were handed a special token on the way in. If your mates couldn't get to the reserve match, you needed to try and find an open exit door and go out and then go in again as many times as you could to collect a token for each friend. Oh, happy days. The tokens were like golden tickets in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. The more tokens you had, the more chance of getting a cup final ticket you had. So, picture the scene. It's 1983. United have reached the FA Cup final at Wembley against Brighton. 
Each club gets 25,000 tickets. Executive box holders, who pay several thousand pounds a year, get first dibs on tickets. That's one of the perks of being an exec box ticket holder. Once the executive box holders have been dealt with, if there are any tickets left, and they usually are because there aren't 25,000 executive box ticket holders, they're usually offered to season ticket holders. And once season ticket holders have had the opportunity to buy, any remaining tickets go on open sale to non-season ticket holders. First, they're offered to fans who have a full set of tokens. What do I mean by a full set of tokens? Well, say, during the season, there were 30 tokens issued. You would cut out your tokens from the programmes and stick them onto a special piece of paper called a token sheet that the club provided. They always had to be glued on. Tokens that were stuck with tape or staples would be automatically disqualified. Do you remember we were advised not to use super glue as well? It's set like a sheen of plastic and the token sheet was at risk of snapping in half. So, a full token sheet would be one with, say, 30 tokens on it. Then, after a few days, any remaining tickets would be offered to fans with 29 tokens. And then, after a few more days, if there's any tickets left, they'd be offered to those with 28 tokens. And that's usually as far as it goes. It might go down to 27, but that would be very unlikely. If you have three or more missing tokens because there were three matches you didn't attend during the season, or maybe you forgot to buy a programme, or worse, you dropped the programme in a puddle, then bang goes your chance of a cup final ticket. There were several problems with the token scheme, one of which that there was nothing to stop someone buying several programmes and having several token sheets and giving them to their friends, or even worse, selling them at a huge profit which meant that someone who'd attended all home games had the same chance of buying a cup final ticket as someone who hadn't attended any matches at all, but has simply bought their way to the front of the queue. With the introduction of computerised systems, it was much easier to track ticket applications and purchases. This led to the token scheme being retired and replaced with a loyalty pot. So now, instead of requiring, say, 30 tokens to apply for a cup final ticket, it was down to how many matches you'd purchased tickets for. For example, for the 2018 FA Cup final which United played in, after the exec box holders had purchased their tickets, the remaining ones were offered to season ticket holders who'd purchased tickets for all seven home cup matches and applied for tickets for away games, including European away games. I'd say about 10,000 people would have fulfilled that criteria, although not all 10,000 would necessarily apply for a cup final ticket. After those applications were dealt with, if any tickets remained, they'd be offered to season ticket holders who purchased tickets for six home cup games, then five, and so on. With all purchases recorded on a computer system, you can see how technology has made this easier. So that brings us to this season and the introduction of digital tickets. Stadium access cards and paper tickets are no more. So what are digital tickets and how does it work? Well, a couple of weeks ago, I received an email from United and the instruction in that email was to open it, the mail that is, on my mobile phone, assuming I've got one, and click the red add to smartphone button, which will add the ticket to the digital wallet on my phone. Then all I have to do is point my phone at the contactless card reader at the turnstiles. Although apparently there were teething problems at a pre-season friendly last week and I can see chaos looming next weekend at the first home game. If only it was actually that simple. 
There's a ton of questions that come to my mind, and to get the answers, I turn to the FAQs on the club's official website. Here's the too-long-didn't-read version. If you don't have a smartphone, they recommend that you print out the PDF version of the ticket, which is attached to the email, and which contains a QR code. The QR code can be read by a scanner at the turnstiles. It's also recommended that you laminate the printed ticket to reduce the risk of damage which might cause the QR reader to fail. Yeah, like everyone's got a laminator at home. If you don't have a smartphone or printer, they advise using a local printer service and ask them to laminate your ticket. And if you're unable to access a printing service, email the club for assistance. If you do present a printed version of the turnstile, you'll have to present valid photo ID as well. And that could be a valid or expired photocard driving license, a valid or expired passport, formal ID cards like the armed forces or police or student or company ID card or a bus pass. Or for under 16s, a valid or expired passport or birth certificate. Now that's interesting because last time I looked, I didn't have a photo on my birth certificate. If you lose the email, check your deleted items. Yes, that's what it actually says in the FAQ. And if it's not there, contact the club. One of the FAQs related to not having enough battery life in your phone when you get to the turnstiles. The answer? It's your responsibility to ensure you have sufficient phone battery before arriving at the stadium. We advise that you make your own arrangements to prevent issues such as a portable charger. I'm pretty sure that a portable charger was on the list of items that you can't take into the stadium, but having checked that list, it seems I was wrong. So apart from failing card readers, if you want to attend the game using your own ticket, it sounds like a fairly painless experience. But what if you're a season ticket holder who, for whatever reason, can't go to a game? As I said earlier, in the old days, it was easy to let someone else use your ticket, but not so now. The club are required to know who's in the stadium at any given time. Whether that's COVID-related or security-related or just Big Brother, they're not saying. The result of that edict from on high is that to allow someone else to use your ticket, you have to officially forward it to them. You might be wondering why we need to forward our tickets to someone else. Well, it's a purely practical reason. Up until the 1980s, football was classed as a spectator sport for the working person who knew when the games would be. Games would kick off at three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon and you knew where you were at. But in recent years, with television having more and more of a say, in return for the millions of pounds that they pump into the game, dates and times of matches have become too unpredictable. It's like trying to hit a moving target. We've had 11.30 on a Saturday morning, 8 o'clock on a Saturday night and 4.30 on a Sunday afternoon. And that was always good fun when we used to count the collection money at church. I'd be in the presbytery with my iPhone with a priest popping in and asking the score. European games could be on a Tuesday or Wednesday evening and if we didn't make the knockout stages we'd entered the Europa League competition which took place on on a Thursday. So with our commitments there was a good chance we'd be forced to miss games. We're lucky in that we have a couple of good friends who we pass our tickets to. So my plan was to arrange to be able to forward our tickets to these friends if needed. The forwarding service was supposed to be available on the 22nd of July. I had it in my diary. But there's no point trying to set it up then. Wait for the rush to die down I thought. Leave it a few days. On the 25th of July, I got a text to say, ticket forwarding facility delayed. 
It will be available in the next 10 days. Then I got another text on the 3rd of August. We're still working hard with our ticketing system provider to ensure this functionality is available prior to the first home game on the 14th of August. Please accept our apologies for the delay. We'll be back in touch as soon as it's available. Before you can forward your ticket to someone else, you have to link your membership account to their membership account, or as United call it, create a relationship. It got to August the 7th. There'd be no further communication from United about when the forwarding would be available. But I thought to myself, I wonder if the create a relationship feature is working. I could at least do that bit and set up a link between our membership accounts and our friends' membership accounts. So I clicked the create relationship button and up popped a message, 404, the page you're looking for cannot be found. It wasn't just me though, searching Twitter and Facebook, it appeared everyone had the same error message. Today I struck lucky, or so I thought. It was lunchtime, I logged into the member site, I clicked create a relationship and I didn't get the 404 message. I got a create a relationship form, whoopie doo. There's two types of relationship. A strong relationship lets the other person control your account. I didn't want that. That's what Elaine and I have, so we can renew tickets and forward tickets on each other's behalf. If all you want to do is forward tickets to someone, you set up a standard relationship with them. So I chose that option. Then it says, does the person exist on our ticket database? Well, in this case, yes, the person does. And I know he does. But in many cases, you'll be forwarding your ticket, not to a complete stranger, but maybe to a friend of a friend. How are you supposed to know if they're in United's ticketing database? So I clicked yes, and then click next. Enter their membership number, and then either their postcode or their surname. Now, I know his postcode and surname, but not his membership number. So I pinged him on WhatsApp. Whilst waiting for a reply, I backed out of the form and selected no to the question, does the person exist on our ticket database? As I was interested to know what would happen. A form popped up asking for details for the person that you wanted to create the relationship with. Does this sound like Tinder or what? Title, first name, last name, date of birth, mobile phone number, email address, home address, postcode. Apart from the little matter of GDPR, how many people know all that information about somebody that they're going to lend a ticket to? Maybe only once. In fact, I read a similar comment on social media. It said, we have a little community of supporters who sit near each other and have formed a friendship and we occasionally let each other have our tickets if we can't go to a game. So we take other friends or relations. We totally trust each other to use the tickets wisely. However, with this system, it'll be impossible to do this as we'd need to know all the details of who the ticket should be sent to, which isn't always possible as we may not know who will be able to take the ticket until the last minute. This system would require us to have access to each other's personal friends and family details, which is ludicrous and intrusive. Anyway, 10 minutes later, I got a reply to my WhatsApp message. The create a relationship form page had timed out. So I logged back in and clicked create relationship. 404, the page you're looking for cannot be found. And it's been like that ever since. In the meanwhile, someone in the United Tickets Facebook group that I'm in had posted that they'd try to buy a ticket for United versus Burnley at the end of December. They got as far as the checkout but couldn't complete the transaction. Well, that would make sense. Tickets for individual matches are only available a few weeks before the game. 
It seems that in trying to fix the forwarding issue, someone at United had accidentally opened ticket sales for every match this season. Genius. As soon as people realised there was a stampede of folks trying to buy seats that they wanted before someone else did. And guess what the impact of that was? Yep, it took the entire system down again. Now, for the less tech savvy, there's a nice little video on United's website which shows you how to forge your ticket, assuming the service is actually available, that is. Well, when I say a nice little video, it looks like it's been created by a five-year-old, and that's being unkind to five-year-olds. First of all, when I click the link on the website to the video, it takes me through to CloudApp. Yes, that's the same CloudApp service that we use the one that we uploaded photos and videos to during Marooned. The same one where we uploaded the copious number of ladypipe photos that we acquired during Marooned. Come on United, you should be hosting this video yourself, not using CloudApp. Nothing wrong with CloudApp, but really, this is Manchester United. So I press play. There was no audio, something that several people made mention of in the comments. Rookie mistake that, leaving the comments enabled. These comments were on the United website, by the way, not CloudApp. To make up for the lack of audio instructions, there was lots of mouse pointer wiggling as the presenter, if I could call them that, was pointing out different parts of the screen. Someone in the comments said it was far too fast for a less tech savvy person. And the suggested solution? Watch it at half speed. And whoever had recorded it hadn't even edited out the pressing of record and the pressing of stop at the start and end of the video. It just shouldn't be this difficult to attend a football match. But it seems that United aren't the only ones having problems. Liverpool have implemented a similar system and the kickoff at their friendly game last weekend was delayed 30 minutes as they struggled to get folks inside the ground. Technical problems at the turnstiles caused huge queues to build up outside Anfield. I can only imagine how traumatic that must have been for those involved in that melee, given the unforgettable horrors of the Hillsborough disaster. It doesn't bear thinking about. So that's where the story ends. I've still not been able to create a relationship. The four ticket facility still isn't working and it's four days until the start of the season. News regarding the progress of Amazon's drone delivery project. Oh yes, back in MacBytes 96. That was called Naughty Narcolepsy. I've got, I've got a recollection that was Jane. Who, do you remember? She drifted off. I do. Mm. Anyway, I sagely predicted in that show, the drone delivery thing, it would never work. Seems I was right. Amazon's drone delivery programme in the UK, known as Prime Air, it sounds like you should go to an airport for that, doesn't it? Well, there is a new report from Wired into the situation, and they say that Prime Air has lost over 100 employees. Those in the know, Amazon insiders, are saying that the project is, and I quote, collapsing inwards, which, if you think about it, is somewhat strange. Amazon managed to get Bezos into space, but it seems getting a delivery to me from a depot four miles away via a drone is completely beyond them. They actually started this project five years ago in 2016 with such a fanfare of publicity, making all kinds of promises about how fast this drone delivery system would be deployed and soon become the norm. Let's file it away as not happening any time soon. Amazon apparently have a new plan. Something tells me she isn't going to like this. Spot on. I don't. It's creepy. Amazon will give you $10 for your palm print. Or to be completely accurate, 
to enrol in its controversial palm print recognition system. Yes, I wondered why I'd want to do that as well. Their answer, the tech uses biometric scanners to identify shoppers and verify payments with a system called Amazon One. I wonder how they thought that one up. <clears throat> Apple One. Back when it launched in September 2020, it was billed as a quick, easy and contactless alternative to making physical cash and card payments at stores, as well as potentially being an identity verification service for event venues and businesses in the future. Why is this needed? We've already got contactless payment methods via card, smartwatch. This actually feels less contactless than the other options. The scanner looks absolutely huge. Now, while it says that you can hover your hand over it to record the initial palm print, I can see people placing their palm on it. COVID much? I have no desire to touch anything in a retail location for the foreseeable future. All of which before we consider the dodgy uses that Amazon might find for this gold mine of personal data. Many folks in the comments made regarding this mentioned that Amazon have a track record in data privacy and biometric technology. Oh yes, they have a history. They took a decision to sell data from the controversial facial recognition technology called recognition with a K. And they sold it to law enforcement. Now, that beauty was mentioned so many times in all the pieces that I read regarding this. Now, although Amazon have banned the police from using its technology last year, there's still a number of outstanding lawsuits that have alleged that it broke laws against sharing personal biometric data without permission. What were they thinking? And if this is such a great benefit to the customer, why the need to entice them with $10? Maybe Bezos has a surplus of funds left over from his foray into space and wants to share the love. Not only is it creepy and raises questions about what Amazon will do with the data, it also goes against the spirit of inclusivity, which seems to be the buzzword of the moment. Just as contactless payments exclude those without smartphones and watches, this scheme discriminates against those who were born without hands or who've lost hands or been involved in an accident like a fire and the makeup of their palm changes. Not one of Jeff's better ideas, I'm afraid. Anyway, it's MacBytes After Hours on Friday. What have you got in store for us? It's the second part of our new Scrivener series. Last time we covered versions, pricing and more together with a Scrivener 101. In this show, I'll be sharing how to effectively create your first project. And I'll be doing more pivot tables. So that brings us on to what we're doing next time. We heard from Barry, a good friend from our sadly now defunct local Mac club. Fantastic to hear from you, Barry. And Barry shared a challenge that he's facing, an iCloud challenge. We'll share all the details next week. We'll also be sharing some of our own stories about iCloud. So if you have tales of your own all about iCloud, do let us know. We'd love to hear them. What you mean is we'd love to know we're not alone in our iCloud woes. Yes, that as well. And that's it for this episode of MacBytes. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Send your questions, comments and queries by email to thecrew at macbytes.co.uk or use the contact form on the website. We also have a very active Slack chat room that's open 24-7. Simply go to macbytes.co.uk slash Slack and join the conversation. 
You can follow MacBytes on Twitter at twitter.com slash MacBytes. And you can follow me personally on Twitter at twitter.com slash Thomas Mike. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash Elaine Giles. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash MacBytesiri. So until the next time, this has been Elaine and Mike bringing you MacBytes. Goodbye. Goodbye and see you next time. Why are you looking smug? Today is a good day. I've actually never seen you look quite as smug as this. Today is a very, very good day. Come on, share what's making you so chirpy. They missed a story. Was it an important one? Indeed it was. Are you going to tell me what it is? Yes, I'm happy to share. Well, come on then. Don't rush me woman, some things are to be savored. In iOS 15 you can create separation alerts. And? It means that we'll never get left behind anywhere. If they stray too far from us they're pinged to pick us up and take us with them. There's a couple of issues with that you seem to have missed. Are there? First, you've spent the last 18 months trying to get some res spite from them. Well, there is that. But at least we won't be lost when they're out and about. That's the other issue. What is? They haven't left the house in that 18 months. I would have thought separation anxiety was the last thing you would be experiencing. O.M.G. You're right. I'm not sure I can take much more of this.